you so much for that. Um, normally, if I have to stand at the front for any length of time, I usually have my guitar on, um, which is quite a nice comfort blanket, actually. It's like my shield to protect me from uh, everyone. Um, so I did toy with the idea of actually just wearing the guitar, just to sort of feel like a bit more at home. Like, um, so it's sitting there just in case, but um, I think we'll go, we'll go without. Uh, I was talked out of that one, uh, let's say, at home. Um, so, okay, so we just, we've been thinking in our morning series um, recently, in that whole kind of reformed um, series, about some of the different ways that the gospel changes our lives, how we are reformed to be more like Jesus, and some of the different ways that that can happen. And you know, at Strandtown, um, we believe that the gospel isn't merely something that, that we believe in in order to get to heaven when we die, okay? The gospel isn't merely something we believe in in order to get to heaven when we die. The impact the gospel has on us isn't only something that is way far off in the future. We believe that the gospel can change our lives right now, right now, radically, radically and completely. From the moment that God intervenes and opens our spiritual eyes to see the truth of his word, he begins a life-changing work in us, which he will ultimately complete when Jesus returns. And you know, scripture screams of, of countless stories um, of, of ordinary people who come into contact with Jesus or his followers and who are wonderfully converted and who go away just completely transformed. Their lives take on a totally different direction. And we think of people like Zacchaeus, people like Nicodemus, um, famously the Apostle Paul, and people like the woman that we're going to read about now uh, in John chapter 4. This is just one example of how an encounter with Jesus can have life-changing implications for us right now. Um, If you'd just like to turn... uh, to that chapter now, actually, just to have it open in front of you. I'm going to read um, John 4, and I'm going to start at verse 4. It's quite a lot. <laughs> Joking with you, reading will probably be half the length of the talk. Not, not quite, but um, it's, it's a long enough wee passage. So we'll start at verse 4 and go down to 26. Um, let me just say <laughs> from the start that whole books have been written about this passage um, and about this encounter, and I have maybe 15-20 minutes here, so I'm not going to be able to cover the whole thing, um, but we are just going to consider very briefly um, this evening this encounter with Jesus, and just really kind of particularly focusing on some of the things that he says to her, okay, some of the things that he says to her, and what they can mean for us today. So John chapter 4, and starting at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Amen. How can I change my life? That's a question that whether or not people vocalize it, and some people do. Um, Everyone kind of seems to be asking that question at the moment. How do I change my life? We have a kind of modern society of sort of permanently dissatisfied, grass is greener, keeping up with the neighbors type people, which can I suggest there's a little bit in each of us of that. Everyone wants to somehow better themselves or at least become a better version of themselves. And so we see books written by life coaches um, and in this case, hypnotists um, and people like that, um, but like this one, hitting the shelves and becoming instant bestsellers. Um, And it seems like these kind of books and, and TV shows are kind of constantly around, constantly in our faces, telling us their special formula for a full or, or a better life. I can change your life if you follow these 10 steps. Um, or if you give up these three foods, you won't believe the results and so on and so on. And if we're honest, we lap it up, don't we? We lap it up. We might sit here tonight and scoff at things like that and, um, and laugh and I think, wouldn't be taken in by that. But it's amazing how easily we can find ourselves drawn in to this type of thing um, And actually, in particular, if you're someone who's maybe going through a particularly difficult time in work or struggling to make lasting friendships, for example, or maybe unhappy with your body image, um, and which, let's face it, on any given day, at any given moment, any of those could apply to any of us in this room, this type of thing or any other type of solution, kind of quick fix offered by the world, it can seem really alluring or attractive, can't it? And actually, on top of that, it can seem totally harmless. Um, In the cold light of day, it can seem totally harmless. Um, 
And generally, these type of books or TV shows or whatever it is will, will kind of tell you to do one or two things, okay? Flip on. Um, so the first thing they'll tell you is exercise willpower, okay? In other words, discipline yourself to do what's right and what's good. Um, and so, for example, um, I work in an office, um, as a lot of people in this room do, um, and I don't know about everyone else, but the chat this week in the office has been all about Lent, okay? All about Lent. Um, after the furore of Pancake Tuesday, of course. Um, but it's, what are you giving up for Lent this year? What are you giving up? Or in some cases, it's becoming more the norm, actually. For some people, it's, what are you taking up for Lent? Um, rather than giving something up, you, you start doing something differently. Or, um, and you might say, well, look, what, what's wrong with that? There's no harm in that, right? Um, it's totally harmless. And I'm not necessarily saying there is fundamentally something wrong in, in taking part in, in all of that. And actually, in fact, something like that can be a good opportunity at times to initiate a conversation with people in work um, and maybe talk about what Lent is, as most people probably don't, don't really know the background to what that's all about. But all I'm saying is that if you, if you think giving up chocolate for a few weeks is going to result in permanent, meaningful, lasting change in your life, then you might be disappointed. You might be disappointed. So firstly, the world will tell us to exercise willpower. Secondly, give in to your emotions, okay? And actually that sounds a little bit like, like an advertising slogan for a chocolate bar or something, doesn't it? Give in to your emotions. Eat this chocolate. What do I mean by that? So look at your emotions and feelings and identify which of those is the strongest, what's the most to you, and express that outwardly. Dress yourself up outwardly in a way that expresses how you're feeling. And that way, over time, you'll transform into your authentic, true self. I think that, that second one is, is kind of a much more modern phenomenon, and particularly kind of younger generations where people are kind of almost, and we're all encouraged to do this now, we're actively encouraged to just indulge our deepest desires and engage in this kind of self-justifying internal monologue that everything I'm feeling and everything I'm going through is fine because everything's great and everything's okay. Everything's good. Give in to your emotions and become your true self. And by the way, the common theme between those two things is while you're working away at that, while you're doing that to try and change your life, why don't you give us all a running commentary on how you're getting on on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook? Isn't that, isn't that right? Because we're all waiting with bated breath to find out how you're getting on with your latest thing. Can't wait for the next update. I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but if we're honest, we are so, at our core, we are so self-indulgent, aren't we? We are so self-indulgent. Exercise willpower. Give in to your emotions. Become your true self. Can I suggest tonight that the gospel is totally different, totally different from both of those things? The way that the gospel changes lives is completely different to anything the world will tell us. And that's because of three things, okay? That's because of, firstly, who it's for. Secondly, who does the changing and then finally, how we are changed, or the process by which we are changed. So it's who, who, how. 
I tried to get it to be who, how, who, so it could be a how sandwich with who is the bread, but um, didn't work out. Who, who, how, that's what we're going to do. So firstly then, who it's for, in verses 7 to 10 here. So verses 6 and 7 tell us that, that Jesus met this woman in the, in the account that we read um, at the well around, it said the 6 hour, around noon, around midday. And look, every commentary you read about this passage will tell you three things. Without fail, every commentary you read about this will tell you three things, um, three significant things about this encounter. Firstly, is the fact that it, it happens at midday. Okay, why, why is that significant? Um, the reason it's significant is because women would generally have gone and collected the water much earlier in the day, and then that, given the temperatures and other kind of obvious reasons why um, you might need water in the morning to do daily chores and all that kind of stuff, it makes sense to get it early in the day. So it is, it's unusual that she's collecting water at this time. So why is she doing it? And the reason she's doing it at this time is that she just wants to avoid contact with anyone else. She just wants to avoid contact, especially with the other women that might be gathering around the well in the, at first thing in the morning. And that's because she is a moral and social outcast. Okay, She's a moral and social outcast in this, in this society. And that's important. Um, and we'll come back to that point in, in a moment. Secondly then... Secondly, then, is the kind of animosity that we see going on and we read about um, in verse 9 and 10. The racial kind of political and, and religious animosity we see between, between the Jews and the Samaritans, okay? So there, there existed at this time just real genuine hatred and animosity between these two people groups. Um, and look, yeah, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And look, that, that division goes back a long way in history. And we can read some of that history in the Old Testament. Um, we're not going to get into that tonight. Other than to say that these are two people groups who just avoid one another wherever and whenever possible. Which again makes this encounter a little bit un- unusual. It's an, an unusual encounter between these two people. And thirdly and finally then is, is the gender divide. Men simply didn't just go up and speak to women in public at this time in history. It just wasn't the done thing. Especially someone that they didn't already know. Um, if you actually glance down, we didn't get this far. Um, verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what, are you, what do you want or why are you talking with her? NIV says surprised. Other versions would say amazed. They were amazed to find him talking to this woman. Um, this, even his disciples are astonished, just astonished that he's doing this. So three things. All the commentators mention those three things. Why, why do I mention that? Just to say that right away as we just dive into this passage, right away here we can see that Jesus is reaching through every barrier, okay? The racial barrier, the gender barrier, the social barrier, the moral barrier. And she's shocked, isn't she? Verse 9, she's stunned. She's stunned that he has approached her in this way and is speaking to her. She is shocked. So why does he do it? Why does he do it? 
because his life-changing power is for everyone. Who's it for? It's for everyone. Jesus' life-changing power is for everyone. And personally, I, I don't think any kind of encounter with Jesus better hammers this point home for us in the New Testament. Um, when you think about who Jesus is, is speaking to here, who he's taking this message to, the very fact that he initiates this conversation, okay, he reaches out to her through all of those barriers we talked about and just obliterates them, just completely obliterates them. His life-changing power is for everyone. Well, how, how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure that it's for, for everyone? Because, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, if only you knew the gift of God, it's a gift. The gospel is a gift. I want you to imagine for a moment that the gospel had to be earned, okay? If we had to, through doing various good works and you know, being a good person, we had to earn our salvation, okay? Just have a think about that for a moment. We had to attain the right to share in the gospel. Can you see how that would put certain people at an advantage over others? simple truth. Some people are more self-controlled than other people. That's just a fact. Some people have more access to training than other people do. Some people have better access to the scriptures and some people have better access to teaching resources. If the gospel of Jesus has to be earned, then by definition, some people stand at an advantage over, over others. But if it's a gift, if it's a gift, which Jesus says it is, then everyone is on an even footing. So being the right type of person, having the right morals, being of a certain social standing doesn't matter. And in fact, Jesus warns in in Matthew 19 that it can actually be even harder for people in a privileged position to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Just while preparing for this this week, I uh, I came across a quote um, from Tim Keller, kind of commonly quoted um, theologian and teacher. and he said, he said this, okay, how can you fail to get a wage? How can you fail to get a wage? Well, if you don't work for it. How can you fail to accept a gift if you don't realize you need it? If you don't realize you need it. Our earthly riches, and by the way, whether we feel like it or not here tonight, we are rich. We are rich in the context of, of this world. That can be a barrier for us in accepting this gift if we don't realize our need for it. God doesn't privilege the privileged. Everyone, everyone is on an even footing when we stand before Jesus. This is a gift for everyone. Second reason, then, that the gospel change is is different to worldly change is who does the changing, okay? Who does the changing, so why is, why is the woman come? Why has she come to the well? Well, she's there to get water, right? She's there to get water. I'm going to have a drink, just coincidentally. See that up there? So Jesus, being a brilliant, brilliant teacher, um, among many other things, uses what's in front of him, as many teachers do, and he compares what he is offering her 
to the water that she is there to draw. Okay, so verses 13 and 14, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Our bodies are at least 50% water, uh, and so we crave water in a way that we don't crave anything else. We don't like being thirsty. Isn't that right? We don't like it. It's uncomfortable when we're thirsty. And actually, if we're extremely thirsty or verging on being, becoming dehydrated, it, it can be more than uncomfortable. It can be agony. It can be real agony. Um, many of you will know my father-in-law, Noel. His daughter's here tonight, so better be careful what I say. Um, he is a man of, of many talents. Um, and one thing that he likes to do, um, because he's mental, is run marathons, okay? And I like... I like running about, I like playing football and tennis, among other things, but you could not pay me to run a marathon. You couldn't pay me to run a marathon. It just, it seems, seems like utter misery, okay, that you would want to put your body through that, that punishment. And I know there's people here tonight, I'm sure, who've done it, but I just can't even begin to think what that would be like. Um, I remember being um, at, at a fold in Hollywood um, one Sunday evening, met like several years ago now. Um, Noel was doing a short talk for the residents there, um, and I'd, I'd just gone along kind of for moral support, really. Um, and as part of his talk, he described the feeling he had had at the end of, of the Dublin Marathon, which he had run, I think, the previous week. Um, and the way he described feeling at the end of the run just exhausted, completely dehydrated. Um, and one of the volunteers handed him a bottle of cold water, okay? And he described the moment that he touched his lips, that the, the water touched his lips. And he used words like restorative, strengthening, sweet. There's nothing sweeter than water when we're incredibly thirsty. And Jesus, in verse 14 here, is saying, I've got something, okay? I've got something for your soul that your soul needs as much as your body needs water. And actually, it's as sweet to the soul as water is to a thirsty mouth. So what is it? What is this living water that Jesus is talking about here? It's the grace of Jesus Christ. It's his grace he's talking about. It's the Holy Spirit's work in your life, empowering your heart to assure you that you are loved by God, to enable you to experience the presence, the pardon, and the friendship of Jesus Christ. It's his grace. The living water of, of Jesus, his grace, fulfills the deepest desires of our hearts in a way that, that nothing else can. And inevitably that changes us, completely transforms us. When we properly get it, when we properly understand his grace, and we'll come to that in a moment, things that once seemed so important, so crucial to us, now just pale into insignificance because of Jesus. Not because of something that we did, 
but because of who he is and what he has done for us once and for all on the cross and what he continues to do in us and through us today. And not only that, but verse 14, the water becomes a spring in us, Jesus says, a spring welling up to eternal life, our own well of water. He's not saying that one drink is enough because we're flawed and forgetful, but he's saying that one true drink produces a well in us for an eternity of drinks so that we need never thirst again. He lavishes his grace on us in such a way that we need never again be thirsty. His grace is more than enough for us. Well, can you see how that is just so radically different to what the world says about changing your life, the change offered by the world? The world world tells us that it's all about what we do, the diet or the exercise plan that we put in place, the new place we start hanging out to meet new people, the new career plan that we head off on. And we're so easily led astray by that type of thinking. And guilty. We're so easily led astray by that type of thinking. And please, look, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when we see this, everything, and Lee Lee already mentioned this tonight, that everything will become rosy and will be 100% fine all the time. That's not what we're saying here, what we're saying is that this actually isn't about our circumstances at all. It's not about the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's about permanent, deep, and lasting change in our hearts. We think we know better what we need, but we don't. He does. Jesus knows what we need. And I want you to see what Jesus says to this woman in, in, in verses 15 and 16 because we kind of see this just kind of played out in front of us um, amazingly. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. What? Go, call your husband and come back. It just seems such a strange, strange answer to what she's, the question she's asked. Give me this water. Here's a woman who seems ready to receive this gift. Give me the water. I want to experience what this water is. I want to experience your grace in my life. And Jesus says, go get your husband. Why does he say that? It's almost like he's misheard her or... It just seems so totally disconnected from from where the conversation is going. But it isn't. It isn't. Jesus is telling us that this living water will satisfy the deepest reaches of our souls forever. And so when the, the woman asks in verse 15 how she can get it, what does Jesus do? He points to the very thing that she is using right now to satisfy her soul, to give her meaning, to give her her identity, the thing that she is replacing the grace of Jesus with, which in her case is men. It's men. He's saying that this thing your soul is craving, you're looking for it in men, but you'll never find it there. In fact, 
let me tell you, it can't be found in any human relationship. It can't be found in any other created thing, any earthly object, any job, any amount of money, any round-the-world trip to go and find yourself. If you try to find deep soul satisfaction in any of these things, you will always, always be thirsty. You'll have to keep going back to the well. And if we're honest, we all have something, don't we? Sometimes more than one thing that we replace Jesus with in our lives. So often we try to change ourselves and so some things we say, for example, so just to take an example, if your thing is, is work, if you just career is your thing, we say things like, you know, I'm working too hard. I, you know, I really need to change. So I need, I need more work-life balance. I need, I need more work-life balance or I need more accountability or I, I need to get to the gym more often or I need to do this. I need to do that. Can you see that there's no heart change in any of that? It's just surface level, temporary foolishness. Ultimately, we will always just fall back into the same patterns again and again and again. We know this. We know this from experience because we've all been there. The reality is that we need someone else, someone else to intervene for us. We need someone else to change our hearts. The world says, you do it. Jesus says, I'm going to do it. Who does the changing? Jesus does the changing. He is the only one who can transform us and bring lasting change. Okay, lastly then, how does this happen? How does it happen? What does it look like? Okay, so I'm just going to read verses 21 to 24 again. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. I want you to notice that, just that first line, verse 21. A time is coming. A time is coming and has now come. A time is coming. And in the original kind of Greek translation, apparently, that word literally means the the hour is coming. The hour is coming and has now come. Jesus is saying something is about to happen. Something's about to happen. Something that will make all temples obsolete. It won't matter where you worship. Something is going to happen that's going to change everything. The hour is coming. In the book of John, just if you've read it, if you're a reader of, of the Bible and you've read John, when Jesus talks about the hour, the hour has come. My hour has come. What is it he's talking about? What's he saying? The hour has come. My hour has come. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross. The hour has now come. 
saying, my death, my death on the cross has now come and that is going to change everything. No more sacrifices. No more need for temples or mountains to worship on. Jesus himself will be the bridge between us and God. I just, if you cast your mind back, I wonder just do you remember what he said when he was on the cross as he approached the moment of his death, John nineteen twenty-eight. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst, I thirst. Now look, he was in physical agony, so of course he would be thirsty. So that, in some ways that's not a surprising thing for him to say in any way. And yet we know there is more going on here than, than simply physical thirst. I'm going to read a verse just, just from the book of Nahum, um, and it's Nahum chapter 1 and verse 6, and I don't mean to take this completely out, out of context, but um, you'll, you'll see kind of why. It's, it's, it's a description of, of God's wrath towards the city of Nineveh, okay? I just, I'm just going to read this verse, and you'll, you'll see kind of where I'm going. So, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can ensure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. That is what Jesus took upon himself for us on the cross. We see the wrath of God here depicted as unquenched thirst, being cut off from the source of all life. That is what Jesus experienced. He took on the burning white-hot agony of the wrath of God so that we didn't have to. Why? Why did he do that? He did that so that he could give us living water, his grace, so that if we drink it, we will never, ever have to experience what he went through for us. How do we change? How are we changed? I actually think Karis Fitch last Sunday morning said it perfectly, you know. It's only when you completely understand what you cost it's only when you completely understand what you cost that you will begin to see your own worth to God he subjected his own son to his wrath so that we could be called his children till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That's why we gather around the Lord's table every week to remind ourselves of, of the reality of the cross and, and to center our lives back around the work of Jesus for us. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. It's when we look to the cross 
that our lives will be permanently changed. The world says, look to yourself. Gospel says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And when we do that, our bitterness and our dissatisfaction with life will be replaced by joy and thanksgiving. Our pain and our sorrow will be replaced by a true, real and living hope for the future. Yes, our circumstances might not change, but and there is no guarantee of that. But actually, the desires of our heart will start to change. We will start to change. Who can be changed by the gospel? Everyone. It's for everyone. Who does the changing? It's not us. Good thing it's not us. Only Jesus can bring wonderful, lasting change to us. How are we changed? How can we be changed? It's when we understand and remind ourselves daily of his victorious work for us on the cross, that our lives will begin to be transformed. And by the way, that's not just for us. I've got this little book with me, which I've read a few times through, actually, um, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, which is a a little devotional book. Um, I just want to read a little bit from it. It's talking about, just talking about this passage. Surely as we receive from him, he will pour out through us and in the measure he is not pouring out, there is a defect in our relationship to him. Is there anything between you and Jesus Christ? Is there anything that hinders your belief in him? If not, Jesus says, out of you will flow rivers of living water. It is not a blessing passed on, not an experience stated, but a river continually flowing. Keep at the source Guard well your belief in Jesus Christ and your relationship to him and there will be a steady flow for other lives, no dryness and no deadness. For other lives as well, not just us. Other lives will be changed as we are changed. I just want to finish, um, I'm going to hand over to Lee and to Lucas in in just a moment, but I'm just going to finish by reading the words of a song which... I don't actually think we've, we've sung it at Strandtown uh, in quite a while, um, but they've just been on my heart this week as I've prepared for this um, for reasons which will become obvious. So if you'd just like to, to close your eyes with me, um, I'll read these words and, and, and we'll pray.